Good day, and thanks for joining us for our corn and soybean update. I'm Jim Minter, director of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture. And joining me today are my colleagues, Dr. Nathan Thompson, who's an associate professor in the Department of Agricultural Economics, and Michael Langemeyer, who's a professor and the associate director of the Center for Commercial Agriculture. We're having our webinar today following USDA's release of the August crop report, crop production report, as well as updated world ag supply demand estimates. And there was a tremendous amount of information in those two reports, so we're going to get right to it. Um, USDA's corn yield estimate, which everybody was anxiously awaiting, came in at 174.6 bushels per acre. Um, that was down roughly five bushels per acre from the estimate that they had published a month earlier. Of course, that was just based on a trend. This one was actually based on some infield observations. So historically, a more accurate estimate of what's going to take place, although there's still a lot of variability if you look at the history on this of these reports of these uh, forecasts. Uh, that does put the yield higher than last year, but not a lot. Um, if you look at the data on a state-by-state -state basis, it's pretty interesting. And, and Michael, I know you've taken a closer look at this than, than, than I have. Those August estimates on a state-by-state -state basis are very interesting. Indiana, Eastern Corn Belt, looks great. Northwest part of the Corn Belt, not so much, right? Iowa, Illinois, and Indiana are all, all looking at yields that are substantially above last year. Uh, and, and Illinois and Indiana record yields, whereas Minnesota, South Dakota, North Dakota yields are substantially below what they were last year. But given the crop conditions up there, uh, that's not real surprising. Um, you know, looking at the latest data, uh, Minnesota had had only 36% of their corn rated good to excellent, North Dakota only 17%. That's why the percentage decline is so large there. South Dakota, 30%. Uh, only 30% of their crop is really is rated good to excellent. And so uh, conditions are not good up there. Um, you know, therefore some very large reductions in yield compared to last year. And, you know, I think a lot of people were expecting reductions, obviously, in that part of the world because of the weather conditions they've experienced. But if there's a surprise in those states, maybe the biggest surprise, at least for me, was Minnesota. Um, we knew that there had been some difficulties, especially in southwest Minnesota, but you know, their yield is down uh, 13, 14% compared to last year. I wasn't expecting that big of a reduction for, for Minnesota. How about you? I thought maybe it might be 10%. I mean, the crop conditions have not been good up there, but 13.5% is, is, is larger than I thought it was going to be. That's a large reduction. Yeah, for a major corn producing state. So if you look at the latest drought monitor, which just came out yesterday, you can see that there's still some question marks in terms of where these yields are going. Um, you know, I've got the drought monitor kind of divided up there with the, kind of the Midwest and, and Eastern Corn Belt uh, part of the market on the right-hand side, and then Western Corn Belt and some of the Plains states on the left-hand side. And you, know, you can see the Dakotas still very dry based on the drought monitor. Um, Minnesota is still very dry, dry based on the uh, drought monitor. Parts of Iowa still pretty dry based on the drought monitor. So as you think about it, um, especially on the soybean side, there is definitely some risk here in terms of what's going to take place uh, going forward. And, and Michael, I know you took a look at you know the percentage of the crop that's in those those states. It's a lot, right? Yeah, if you look at uh, uh, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Minnesota, it's close to 19% uh, of the corn crop, with Minnesota having close to 9% uh, in, in just that state. 
Uh, and so very large corn producers and, and some uh, fairly low yields. Uh, Iowa, even though Iowa is up compared to last year, remember they had that really bad storm, uh, windstorm last year. So that, that impacted yields in Iowa throughout uh, Iowa, uh, particularly in certain places. Uh, and so, and so the, you need to put that perspective too, just to get a little bit more context on the Iowa yield, Indiana is expected to have a higher yield than Iowa. It, it, that doesn't happen very often. Typically, Iowa has stronger uh, average corn yield than, than Indiana. Yeah, and you, you point out Indiana, record high yield expected in Indiana at 194 bushels per acre. Um, you've also taken a look at those crop conditions. You kind of mentioned that a little bit earlier, but you might want to highlight those a little more, Michael. Just to summarize briefly, I mean, if we see, if we, if we take a look at this this chart and we see that Indiana is well above their five-year average, we can see why uh, Indiana is expecting record record corn yields. Uh, uh, you know, percentage of the crop rated good to excellent is almost three-fourths in Indiana compared to a 60% five-year average. On the U.S., on the other hand, uh, the 2021 uh, uh, percentage of the corn ranked good to excellent is actually lower than the five-year average. And so I, th I think that helps to explain why uh, Indiana is expected to have such a high corn yield and the U.S. average being below trend. So if we take a look at the corn production numbers and look at the chart for just a second, that corn production number for the U.S. came in at 14.75 uh, billion bushels. That's up from 14.18, but it's uh, lower than what USDA was forecasting a month ago and lower than what the trade was expecting coming into the report. So if you want to focus on the surprise for the re from the reports yesterday, the big surprise really was on the corn yield and resultingly on the corn uh, yield uh, production number, uh, both of those coming in below the average and, and actually below most of the individual estimates as well on both of those. Um, if you look at the ending stocks estimates, USDA did raise the 2020 crop ending stock estimate. In other words, the quantity of corn we're going to carry over from the 2020 crop year into the 2021 crop year just slightly. But if you look at the chart, um, it's sort of humbling in a way to look at this chart, because if you look at what the number was projected to be this time a year ago, that number was projected to be almost 2.8 billion bushels. And so that projection wound up coming down by roughly 1.7 billion bushels over the course of the marketing year. That is a huge change in the estimate over time. And, and I guess points to the idea of how difficult it is to forecast ending stocks. Um, Michael, you pointed out one of the reasons, and that was because uh, the crop estimate was shrinking hard following the release of the August report. And part of that was the storm uh, that swept through so much of the of the corn belt in, in Midwest last year, just really just a, a week a year ago this week actually. If you look at uh, the ending stocks projection for uh, the 2021 crop year going into the 2022 crop year, USDA pulled that back roughly 190 million bushels uh, compared to uh, their forecast just a month earlier. So that number is now 1.24 billion bushels. A month earlier, it was 1.43 billion bushels. So that's still a pretty tight ending stocks uh, number. If you look at that ending stocks as a percentage of total usage, um, for 2020, that came in at 7.4%. That's a revised estimate on this month's report. For next year, for the 2021 crop year, it's coming in now at 8.5%. And just remember, a month ago, that was very, very close to 10%. It was just under 10% a month earlier. So um, 
I'm not going to say that we're going to see a repeat of what we saw last year, but we are seeing a little bit of evidence of some tightening in those stocks relative to what we are expecting earlier in the marketing year. Um, on a world basis, those world stock to use ratios tightened again by USDA down, I think about 1% compared to last month. So we're at 24%. That's not a huge change, but I think the key point there is you look at the trend uh, over time and we have gradually been tightening those world stocks estimates. Um, and you know, on an ongoing basis, if you're tightening those world stocks estimates, what that really means is you're consuming more than you're producing. Um, and from a producer standpoint, that's a favorable outcome in terms of tightening those stocks and, and having some positive price implications. Um, taking a closer look at exports, uh, the 2020 crop corn exports are on track to meet USDA's revised corn export projection. Um, as of the end of July, we've exported uh, about 90% of what USDA is forecasting. If you compare that to history, uh, that bodes pretty well for them actually hitting their target, right? So I think that also bodes pretty well for the carryover number being pretty accurate from the 2020 uh, crop year into the 2021 crop year. Um, if you take a closer look at exports to all destinations versus China, that's pretty interesting. The total corn exports this year compared to last year up about 64%. Um, exports to China alone account for a little over three-fourths of the increase in corn exports we've seen this year. Um, that just speaks to how important the shipments to China have been and, and truthfully uh, continue to be. Um, so this is a new chart this uh, month, this next one, which is taking a look at uh, the marketing year uh, commitments for the upcoming marketing year for both all destinations and China. And I guess I need to explain this chart a little bit because it makes it look like historically China doesn't buy any corn uh, before the, uh, the start of the new marketing year. That's not exactly true. What China tends to do, if you look closely at the weekly data, they tend to pick up some corn at the very end of the marketing year. So here in the month of August, uh, China has a tendency to buy some corn. Uh, this chart doesn't pick that up in those prior years, 16, 17, 18, and 19, because they didn't do it until the month of August. And this chart is just through the end of July, which is the data that's available for this marketing year. So if you look at the right-hand side of that slide, though, that's really the more interesting part. And that is two things. One, our export commitments for the upcoming marketing year are substantially larger than they were this time last year. Then the second point is, if you look at the change that's taken place, the vast majority of that change is really coming about because of one country, increases in export commitments to China. Uh, a year ago, those upcoming marketing year commitments were at 225 million bushels. Uh, for the upcoming marketing year, the 2021 marketing year, they're already at 423 million bushels. And of course, there's been some reports this week of China making some additional purchases. So those, that number is going to rise when we have some more data. Um, and again, speaks to the importance of, of moving corn to China. One of the things to keep in mind with respect to China is that roughly two-thirds of the world's corn ending stocks reside in one country, namely China. And when I see the increase in exports going to China or export commitments to China, that suggests to me that China is still trying to rebuild their stocks um, and maybe some of those ending stocks that are being reported are perhaps not as well positioned or maybe out of condition, uh, but still pretty strong demand from China for corn from the U.S. 
going into this upcoming year. And of course, some of that's probably related to the, the shortfall in production in South America coming out of Brazil as well. Uh, on the ethanol side, another big component of usage, USDA continues to forecast a, a pretty modest recovery in ethanol um, usage, eth usage of corn to produce ethanol. Uh, their forecast for this year is at 5.08 billion bushels. Their forecast for the upcoming marketing year is at 5.2 billion bushels, so a pretty small increase. And I guess from my perspective, I think that's probably pretty realistic. If you take a look at what's happened to uh, estimated daily uh, margins at the ethanol plants, they have really narrowed pretty substantially. Um, those margins have collapsed from uh, in the early spring or mid-spring timeframe of about 63 cents uh, per gallon of ethanol produced uh, down to recently. They've been bouncing around. Some days they were actually negative. Uh, more recently, they've been positive, but just barely. Ed, I'm not sure if you've moved over to that next slide, but that those margins are really going to be indicative of what's taking place uh, going forward. And I think probably consistent with USDA's very modest recovery uh, in, in ethanol usage. But it, it also speaks to this idea that the recovery from the pandemic, which seemed really well underway a few weeks ago, all of a sudden now seems maybe a little less positive than it did as people become more and more concerned about the, the Delta new variant. So um, that's something we're gonna have to keep a, a pretty close eye on. If you look at the ethanol production numbers, the percent change compared not to last year, but to 2019. So we're comparing the 2021 numbers to the pre-pandemic era. Uh, and the last time we did one of these webinars, the last observation we had was that green bar of a 2% increase. Notice what's happened since then. It's been hovering, truthfully, pretty close to even with the 2019 level. But the most recent observation, which is just from last week, uh, production down 6% compared to where it was in um, 2019. Again, I think that's reflective of what's going on with those margins. Uh, if you want to see those ethanol production numbers improve, you're going to have to see better margins. And that probably is going to be related to what's going on with the pandemic uh, in terms of the, the rate of recovery that we experience. So I'll pause there and kind of turn it over to Nathan. And Nathan, you've been looking at uh, the basis situation here in the Corn Belt. Yeah, so we'll just start out with a, a quick look of what's going on with basis here in central Indiana. Um, so here we're looking at corn basis in central Indiana using the Center for Commercial Agriculture's crop basis tool. Uh, I'm looking at the current year's basis, which would be the black line uh, and relative to the historical three-year average, which would be the blue line. Uh, and we're looking at this relative to September futures for the entire crop marketing year, where we're at in, in the end of the crop marketing year. Uh, looking at nearby basis can be a little deceiving. And so we're just going to look at it relative to those September futures kind of for the entire crop marketing year to kind of get a better idea of what the, the trend has been there uh, of late. And what you can see is that, you know, back uh, early in the summer months, we, well, throughout the crop marketing year, we've had relatively strong basis. And, and that really got uh, to its peak there in the early summer months where we were as much as $1.40 above where we would expect to see based on that historical average basis. So very strong basis levels there early in the summer months. Um, that has kind of pulled back a little bit, but um, you know, I wouldn't say that it's had a steady or a trend of decline. It's just kind of you know uh, a little bit at a time pulled back and really has flattened off here of late. 
where currently, you know, we have basis levels that are in the ballpark of a dollar above uh, that historical average, um, which for this time of year, we would expect to see basis, you know, somewhere around zero, uh, meaning the cash price and futures price would be the same, but instead we have, you know, a dollar basis right now. And so, you know, as we look forward uh, to what to expect, you know, obviously the report yesterday, the big news was uh, corn yield being brought down at a national level, but as has already been mentioned, right, um, in, in the state of Indiana, corn yield uh, is projected to be record highs. And so basis being an inherently local concept, uh, you know, we have to think about, you know, what do we expect to see in terms of corn basis here in Indiana, where we're likely to have, um, you know, ample corn um, supplies. Um, and so I think, you know, if you look uh, forward a little bit, and we'll talk about this in just a second in a little bit more detail, but, um, you know, uh, those forward contract bids for new crop delivery are currently, you know, at levels that would be more normal uh, with normal being a, a, a very dangerous word when we think about, you know, what's happened in, in the last several years, but more, you know, in those normal levels, as opposed to seeing kind of continued strength uh, in basis going forward. So to kind of uh, give you a slightly different uh, look at, at, you know, if we expect basis levels, corn basis levels in particular to maybe uh, revert to those uh, seasonal kind of normal levels this fall, um, you know, what in, in the state of Indiana, what, what might be happening in other places? And so we've talked about uh, at, at length kind of some of the uh, production issues that are being had kind of in those Northern Plains states so I went, our, our counterparts uh, at Kansas State University have a, a basis tool that's similar uh, to what we have at the Center for Commercial Agriculture, but within kind of their geographic scope, they include North Dakota. And so I thought it would be interesting to look at uh, what those corn basis levels uh, in North Dakota look like. And then again, kind of think about what, what they might do. Um, so this is kind of an interesting exercise. And for folks that might not be in Indiana, this could be useful information. A couple of caveats uh, just about what the, the kind of setup for the, the tool that Kansas State has. Where our tool goes on a crop marketing year starting in September, uh, they kind of use more of a calendar year. And so what we're looking at uh, starts the first week of January. So the very left-hand side of the chart is the first week of January and then moving forward. So for example, week 20 would be uh, the last week of May, right? So the fifth month of the year, four weeks a year. And so what you can see is again, you know, in North Dakota, uh, corn basis. And so this is for an individual location that's kind of in the center uh, of the state there. Corn basis has been above what they would typically see uh, as far as their three-year average. And again, basis in those Northern Plains states tends to be much more negative than what we see uh, here in the Eastern Corn Belt. But again, the red line being uh, the current year's um, corn basis has been above that uh, green line. We saw that dip uh, there in, in the middle of the slide, which is a, a shift from, because again, this is nearby basis. We were looking at, at deferred basis uh, based on that September contract for our tool. Here, we're just looking at nearby basis. That dip is just a roll from one contract to the next, uh, as far as what futures contract we're comparing to. But really what I wanna focus on is what's happened here in the last four weeks or so as, as it relates to corn basis there in North Dakota. And that is that it's, it's similar to what we see here is pretty strong, right? So a dollar above that three year uh, average. And as opposed to what I said, as it relates to Indiana and thinking about, um, you know, while, you know, national yields are down, we're gonna see record year yields here in Indiana. 
we know that they're going to take a pretty big hit on yields uh, in those northern plain states. And so I would expect that the strength that we're seeing in basis here in this chart will likely continue as opposed to eroding uh, like we're probably going to see in the eastern Corn Belt states where, where crop conditions are a little bit better. And that'll be interesting, something to keep, keep an eye on and track. But just the idea of basis being local, that's what's going to happen. We've seen this in the past. Uh, with, for example, um, the planting issues that we saw in 2019, basis is, is the tool that gets used to move grain, right? North to south, east to west. And so as we keep an eye on what basis does um, throughout the, the 21, 22 crop marketing year, it's likely that uh, we're gonna be pooling grain, you know, um, uh, from the Eastern Corn Belt, maybe towards some needs uh, more in the Western Corn Belt. So that's an interesting point, uh, Nathan. There's been a couple of times in recent years, 2015 come to mind and 2019 comes to mind, where the opposite was true. Basis levels in the Eastern Corn Belt, here in Indiana in particular, were stronger um, than elsewhere because of shortfalls in production in our part of the country. We were having to pull corn from west to east. This crop year is shaping up the opposite. So it's going to be... I think something for producers, uh, particularly in the Eastern Corn Belt, to keep in mind with respect to making sales, we might not see as much strength and basis this marketing year as we have in some of those prior years because of the fact that we're looking at record yields where those other states are actually below trend. That's right. particularly true of Minnesota. You know, Minnesota is a very large corn and soybean uh, producer, and, and the fact that their crop is as bad as it looks like it's going to be, uh, there's definitely going to corn have to be moved up towards Minnesota. Good point. So Nathan, so, you can look at the ethanol plant basis as yeah, well. Yeah, so here we have uh, Indiana ethanol plant basis. And again, I, I've just lumped all the ethanol plants in the state of Indiana kind of into one average Indiana ethanol plant basis. Again, I'm looking at this relative to September futures throughout the, the crop marketing year uh, to give us a, a little better um, idea of what the trends are, so to speak, in terms of what's been happening there. And so again, there's a lot on the chart and I know we've, we've showed it in previous months, but just to kind of break down quickly, um, you know, what, what all is here. We have the, the blue line there, which is the 15 to 17 uh, ethanol, Indiana ethanol plant uh, basis average across those three years. And the reason I kind of use those three years as the three-year average uh, being um, that's kind of the last time we kind of saw normal, and, and again, normal is a relative term, but normal basis uh, patterns um, for, for Indiana. The 2018, 2019 crop marketing year is the green line there. And so you can see we started out relatively normal, but then we had the planning uh, issues in the spring of 2019, which, uh, just uh, had basis kind of go through the roof there uh, in the summer of 19 to, to make up for the fact that we, we were expecting to have um, some production shortfalls from not getting, getting corn planted. Uh, you go to 2019-2020, to, um, which is the red line, right? We start out with strong basis levels again coming out of uh, 2019 harvest. And um, we get to March of 2020, we have the pandemic hit travel, uh, gasol uh, gasoline demand, things of that nature uh, take a huge hit. And so ethanol plant basis drops pretty, pretty drastically there uh, in, in March of 2020. And then the black line is what's happened this year. And that's really what, what we've been trying to pay attention to relative to those previous years uh, and kind of see what's happened. And, and what we've seen is that since the beginning of 2021, so January 2021, we've seen uh, ethanol plant basis here in Indiana 
um, pretty steadily and pretty consistently increasing. Uh, so some pretty big uh, swings there as far as going up. Again, if you put that into context of what happened in the spring of 2019, again, the, the green line there with planning uh, issues where we saw basis levels that were you know very, very high, we're well above uh, that level now. Now of late, you know, this summer, the last month, two, three months, um, we've seen that kind of level off, right? So there, the circle at the end of the chart there is kind of showing us you know, what's happened here lately. And so we've seen that ethanol plant basis level off. And again, you know, Jim shared um, uh, some of what's been going on as it relates to both production and ethanol plant margins uh, previously. And, and how that has maybe started to pull back as you think about what's going on with the pandemic uh, and those um, those margins at the ethanol plants. And so it'll be interesting to see, you know, we obviously have a pretty big premium built in here over um, even good years in the past. And so uh, will that continue or will we see that start to drop as we move towards harvest? And again, in Indiana in particular, we're gonna have corn. Uh, so it's not like ethanol plants are gonna have to uh, you know, bid up the price in order to, to bring in corn. So, you know, how, how that ethanol plant basis um, pans out here as we move towards harvest will be really interesting um, as it relates to where we're at and, and where we've been in the past. So Nathan, as I was uh, listening to you uh, discuss the ethanol plant basis, it strikes me that for producers, one recommendation is to pay close attention to what those forward contract basis bids are, right? Um, if you see an opportunity, there could be some chances, uh, depending on what happens here, uh, to maybe lock in some favorable basis, uh, particularly in the early harvest period. But I mean, it's a little bit of an unknown here. But um, you might you might choose not to do flat price, but you might want to lock in a positive basis, and uh, we'll kind of see how that plays out. But that's something to keep an eye on here as we move into the fall. You've taken a look at uh, some hedge values, right? Yeah, so again, we've been showing this for a while and, and really this is just to get folks thinking and, and, and get them in the mindset of new crop. Obviously we're moving in that direction very quickly, um, but just to give you an idea of you know what we're looking at currently in terms of new crop opportunities. Uh, this morning, uh, new crop December corn futures were trading for $5.77. Uh, I went to the crop basis tool and pulled out uh, a, crop, a, a corn basis bid for um, an estimate of the corn basis bid for this fall. So based on the historical average, and that's about 15 cents under. And again, when I looked around at some uh, different elevators and what their current new crop bids are, that's pretty in line with what I've been seeing. And so that puts us at a cash price of $5 and 62 cents. And so, um, you know, you have to, um, you have to evaluate kind of, you know, Mentally, you know, how, how do you view that $5 and 62 cent uh, cash price opportunity that's available to us? Obviously it's not the highest that we've seen, you know, um, in 2021, uh, but it's, it's not the lowest. And we'll talk in a minute about some downside risk, but I think one really interesting thing to compare to is what's going on with uh, USDA's uh, marketing your average price, right? So on the next slide here, I think we have, um, the, the marketing year average national uh, corn price. And so on yesterday's report, uh, they revised that um, corn price to $5.75 uh, a bushel. And so when you compare that to what I'm showing with current um, 
uh, cash price opportunity based on a, a futures hedge of uh, $5.62, right? Uh, you have to think about what, what is the signal there in terms of the information in that report. And I know, Jim, you had mentioned some, some kind of thumb rules for potentially converting that national price to an Indiana price. Uh, I don't know if you want to speak to that a little bit. Yeah, so historically, if you look at the marketing year average price from USDA, uh, prices here in Indiana tend to be at a small premium to that. Um, you know, it depends a little bit on the year and, and what time frame you're looking at, but maybe 10 or 15 cents above that would be a, an average price for uh, Indiana over the course of the marketing year relative to what USDA's marketing year average is. And so, yeah, the comparison is kind of interesting. There's not too many times this time of year when the USDA marketing year average forecast is suggesting prices could average uh, really, I would say, significantly above what the hedge price that you were talking about, right? You were at 560, 562? Yeah, 562. Um you know, versus uh, maybe that marketing year average in Indiana might be closer to 585, 590, somewhere in that range. So um, kind of an interesting point, right? Uh, it, it kind of implies that, you know, maybe don't get too aggressive in terms of marketing at these price levels, right? I think it definitely sends a signal of, of upside potential. Uh, you know, I know Michael's going to show his, his break-evens a little bit later, I still fall in the camp of you have if you haven't done anything, you know we're well above those break evens. And if you let it go by, and you know beforehand we talked about some, you know what what could be a downside. And, and I don't I don't think we want to get too far into it. But you know we talked about African swine fever being in the Caribbean. You know there there are some some things out there that could be uh, kind of negative as it relates to, to crop markets. Um, and so I, I agree. I think that the signal here, when we look at the information from the USDA, that is there's upside potential. You don't want to get overly aggressive. But, you know, if you if you flip to the next slide, Ed, you know, if you look at where we've been uh, in terms of corn futures prices uh, this summer, you know, we're right smack dab in the middle, right? You're not making a poor decision to pull the trigger on selling a little bit of crop now. Again, if you haven't done anything yet to lock in uh, what are clearly some very favorable price levels. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's a balanced, it's a balanced uh, approach here as far as, um, you know, appreciating upside potential and, and, and there's certainly information to um, uh, suggest that that's, that's a strong possibility, but then also not, not uh, forgetting that, you know, when we talk about marketing, we're talking about risk management, right? We want to eliminate downside. And so we can lock in, um, some profitable levels and, and, and have those uh, in our pocket, and then we can move forward and see what happens from there. Yeah, good point. A couple yeah. points, Nathan. Uh, the break-even uh, for 2021 for a lot of folks is 425 or slightly below that. Uh, and so certainly I'm going to trot out the old adage, uh, you can't go broke by selling a crop uh, for a profit. So certainly I, I think you should consider uh, you know pricing a part of this crop uh, and take advantage of the fact that the the difference between your break even and, and expected is fairly wide. And so Nathan, I think you've taken a more explicit look at what the downside risk might be, right? That's right. So we've been looking on the next slide at um, kind of the, the University of Illinois farm doc team has a futures price distribution tool. So based on option prices and, and time value, it goes in and uh, creates a distribution of potential um, December corn, uh, futures prices, what that price will be at expiration. So um, 
we've been looking at this, you know, for the last couple of months on the webinar and thinking about what is the downside risk potential um, as we think about where that price could be going as we move towards expiration of that uh, December corn futures contract. And what's interesting is that the the I've been looking at it in terms of uh, what's the probability of a $1 decrease. That's just kind of a simple way to, to look at it. So what is the probability that the price declines by a dollar or more between now and expiration of that contract? And what's interesting is that um, that probability has been declining, right? And again, that's somewhat obvious as we get closer to expiration, we have more information that distribution is going to get tighter. But it's still interesting, you know, month over month, I think um, last month, the probability of that $1 decline in December corn futures was uh, 20 or maybe a little over 20%. Now we're down to 14%. So we've seen that kind of downside risk uh, potentially, you know, uh, lessen a little bit. Uh, and so, you know, again, profitable opportunities to be had. Again, there's there's also upside potential uh, if you look at the, the, the table there on the right-hand side as, as well. Uh, I think we got to be a little bit careful. We don't want you know to hope for 650 and have that be our strategy for for marketing our grain, right? I know Michael would hate that. Um, and so I think you know, looking at this just just quantifies a little bit of that risk. And again, it's interesting to look at it month over month and see how that downside risk has changed, and let that kind of play into to how you're making some of these decisions as, as it relates to um, you know what marketing decisions you do want to make, or maybe what what portion of the crop are you wanting uh, to make some decisions on. So as you think about it, um, you know, one of the one of the th reasons I think we're encouraging people to think about making some sales at these price levels, even though we think there's some reasons for optimism, is really about risk, risk management. And I think sometimes we get too caught up in price forecasting and not think about risk management. And so one of our jobs here, I think, is maybe to, you know, pull people back a little bit and say, all right, think about this from a risk management standpoint and a financial management standpoint. And from that perspective, we know that a lot of our listeners, a lot of our viewers probably haven't done very much pricing at all, or in some cases, maybe no pricing at all of a new crop. So from that standpoint, there's clearly some opportunities there. Well, let's take a look at the soybean side. And I have to apologize, I have a glitch in my chart. Somehow I managed to uh, omit the, the 2021 uh, estimate, but anyway. Uh, such, such is life. I'll update that uh, for the slide deck that we post on the web, but um, it doesn't really matter too much. The estimate for yield came in really very, very close to USDA's estimate um, or from the trades estimate coming into the report. Down a little bit from where they were last month with respect to their trend yield um, and down just slightly compared to the trades estimate. Really came in at, right at 50 bushels per acre. I think the trade estimate coming in was about 50.4. So not much change there. If you look at the soybean yield uh, map on a state-by-state -state basis, again, um, there's some similarities to what we saw on the corn side, right? Uh, the big question mark is primarily in that northwest part of the corn belt, especially north and south Dakota uh, and Minnesota. And to some extent, this is actually maybe a little more important on the soybean side because we have so many acres, uh, especially in the Dakotas, and carrying over in Minnesota as well. But those states uh, are down significantly compared to last year. Um, Michael, again, I think you've taken a little closer look at that. Yeah, Jim, just to point out, to reiterate what you were just, just saying, almost one out of every four 
uh, planted soybean acres come from North Dakota, South Dakota, and Minnesota. And so this region is extremely important uh, for soybean production, even more so than they were for corn production. And, and the percentage of the crop uh, rated good to excellent in those states is very low. Uh, Minnesota is only 34%, South Dakota 27%. And, and you see this large decline uh, in expected yield in North Dakota. Uh, keep in mind that only 13% uh, of the current soybean crop is rated good to excellent in North Dakota. And so some very, very low uh, crop conditions in, uh, in, in North Dakota. And that's why we're seeing such a low yield of only 24 bushel average uh, in North Dakota. I also like to point out, we talked, we were talking about this earlier before the webinar, uh, the U.S. average is right at 50. There's, there's probably a wider band around the U.S. average for soybeans than there is for corn. Uh, for, for obvious uh, reasons, uh, you know, th this time of year is very important for, for soybean yields. And so uh, it really depends on what the, the weather is for the next couple of weeks. Um, you know, there, there could, there could be a, they could lower this yield if, if the weather's not very cooperative in the next two weeks, or this yield could increase uh, if we have some timely rains across the corn bill. Yeah, it's important to remember these yields estimates are effective as of approximately August 1. And of course, we've already had a couple of weeks of weather, but as you point out, we've got a couple of more before the September 1 estimates. And, you know, if you think about the weather impact and yield, probably all the way out through at least the middle of September, right? So, and uh, another thing to point out here, Jim, is, is the, the record yields in both Indiana and Illinois, and Illinois at a 64 bushel average. My goodness, <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a high average. And so uh, that'll be interesting to see whether that, whether that actually happens. Yeah, it, uh, for our viewers, yesterday we had the crop report down at the Indiana State Fair uh, press conference, and you know one of the discussion points with our soybean specialist Sean Castile here from Purdue was, um, you know, what's been the impact of early planting soybeans, and I think on some of these uh, eastern corn belt states in particular, we're seeing some of that. There was really an emphasis on planting soybeans early this year. In fact, for the first year that I really remember seeing a number of people plant soybeans and leaving their corn planter in the yard uh, because they thought it was too early. And, uh, uh, you know, it, early planting soybeans has really turned out to be a profitable move. We, we heard that on the farm management tour earlier this, uh, this summer, Michael. So again, you took a look at the crop condition ratings on the soybean side. Wait a minute, I skipped a slide, sorry. So, um, so if you look at the production estimate, 4.34 billion bushels, that's up about 200 million bushels compared to last year. And that was very, very close to the trade's uh, pre-report estimate. So no big variation there. It was kind of interesting yesterday when the report came out, we did see in the short run, we did see kind of a pop in the marketplace, but it seemed like after people looked at the report a little more closely, they realized that this really didn't differ much from what the pre-release estimates were. And it's all of a sudden the, the prices kind of came back to where they were before the report, uh, before the market opened that day, actually not so much before the report. Um, so Michael, again, you've taken a look at those uh, crop condition ratings. Yeah, there's a very similar story to what, what, what we talked about with vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis corn. Uh, Indiana is looking well above the five-year average. 70% um, of, of, uh, of the soybean crop is rated good to excellent in Indiana. In the U.S. is the opposite story. 2021 uh, is below uh, the five-year average. And that's why I say there is a band around that uh, U.S. soybean yield, because when you look at the comparison, uh, you know, for both corn and soybeans, 
U.S. U.S. 2021 uh, compared to U.S. five-year average. It's a similar story. Uh, and you remember the corn yield was was very low com- compared to expectations. Where the soybean yield, I think it came out right about in the middle of, of uh, uh, pre-report estimates of, of that soybean yield. And so we could see a, we could see a, a deterioration in that U.S. Uh, soybean yield in the next production estimate. Yeah, I think our viewers are kind of picking up on the fact that we we kind of think the drought in August is really going to have some more impact, and this yield story isn't really perhaps. I mean, I'm just I'm just saying there is there is. That is an open question yet. Oh, you backed away from it, Michael. Come on. <laughs> uh, all right, let's take a look at the export situation. So um, if you look at it, soybean exports this summer, especially in China, were really pretty darn slow. Um, and as a result, USDA has pulled back their export projection. Um, still a pretty good number from a historical standpoint, obviously, at, at 2.18 billion bushels but a little less than what we we're anticipating earlier in the year. Um, and of course, China continues to be extremely important. You can see that on the chart. Um, if you look at the export projections coming off the World Ag Supply Demand Estimate Report and look at where we're at so far, we've exported 96% of what USDA is forecasting. Well, that's partly because they keep pulling back the export number, right? So. As, as we've gone through the summer, they've kind of gradually pulled that number down a little bit. And as a result, yeah, I think we're going to hit the target. Um, but I'm not confident that if you look at the recent numbers, I don't think we're going to blow through it either. So um, then as you start looking at the ending stocks, this is a pretty interesting story. It's, it's a little different story than what we saw in corn. In corn, um, the ending stocks estimates peaked back in the beginning of the marketing year, uh, actually before the beginning of the marketing year, and then we kind of pulled them down pretty much continuously throughout the course of the marketing year. Soybeans looked pretty similar up until the spring when all of a sudden it became clear that the export numbers were starting to slow down. And if you look at the change since May, on two occasions now, USDA has raised the 2020 ending stocks number. So we had a period of about four months in a row where the ending stocks estimate was sitting at about 120 million bushels. Then back in June, they bumped it up to 135. This month, they bumped it up 25 million bushels to 160. That's a still a very tight ending stock estimate. But in the futures market and the commodity markets, it's always changed today relative to yesterday, or in this case, changed this month relative to last month. And so the change was going the wrong way. We weren't using as much as people expected. And as a result, I think that explains some of the softness that we've seen in, in soybean prices this summer. If you move ahead and then start looking at the forecast for the 2021 marketing year, so far, no change. Been sitting at that 155 million bushels uh, going back to June. This report didn't change that. It'll be interesting to see if that changes uh, in the September report. And I think if there is a driver of change there, it's probably going to be on the yield side. So um, if you look at that from a historical standpoint, that 155 is pretty much right in line with where USDA is coming out of this 2020 crop. Um, But that leaves us then at at about a three and a half percent ending stock in the 2020 marketing year going into the 2022 crop season. Now that 2020 estimate on the chart, that 3.5 is a little larger than what we were showing last month. We were actually below 3% on last month's chart. 
Um, so it's it's a little larger than people were anticipating. But if you look at it from a historical standpoint, those are really tight ending stocks estimates, right? I mean, we're pretty much talking pipeline supplies or maybe just a little more than pipeline supplies. Not much wiggle room there on either the production side or on the demand side. Um, and so a volatile situation ahead of us, I think, in terms of soybean prices. Um, if you look at it on the world's uh, standpoint, um, not exactly the same as what we saw in corn, but over time, uh, particularly going back to 2018, those ending stocks estimates from a world standpoint have been tightening. So of course in 2018, uh, we got up on a worldwide basis up to 33%. We've been pulling it down since then, down to 25%. It's not as tight as it was back in 2011 and 12 and 13, but it's not too much above that either, right? Those numbers were in the 22 to 23% uh, ending stocks estimates range. And we're sitting at just a touch over 25%. Um, so again, very tight supply situation on the soybean side relative to usage. Um, so with that, Nathan, you've been looking at soybean basis. Yeah, so we'll start off here with uh, soybean basis uh, here in central Indiana. Again, uh, I'm looking at this relative to the September soybean futures contract for the entire crop marketing year. And we have uh, the black line, which is current year's soybean basis level and the blue line being the two-year historical average. And so, um, you know, somewhat similar to corn, we've seen basis pull back. The difference for soybeans is that that's been a much more steady and a much more obvious trend kind of moving or reverting back to that kind of historical average. So, you know, we had uh, soybean basis, again, relative to the September futures contract, of as much as $2.42 above the historical average back at the beginning of the summer. Uh, and that has kind of dwindled down to really only being below, uh, you know, 44 cents uh, above that historical average. So basically we've seen uh, soybean basis deteriorate, you know, about $2 a bushel um, uh, between uh, beginning of the summer and now. And uh, again, you know, how you calculate that is, is, is um, affects, you know, what that number looks like. That number might be shocking to some people, but it, it Based on you know uh, that September futures contract, we we've seen soybean basis really uh, decline, moving towards that historical average, and again, um, you know that's probably um, a, a little bit interesting to think about as we think about where basis is going to be in the fall. So again, you know when I look around at forward contract bids for fall delivery, basis appears to be kind of right in line with that historical average. And so even with the tight supplies, we haven't seen um, folks lining up to, to bid up soybean prices this fall. Uh, that may change as we, we've already mentioned, you know, what happens uh, between now and harvest can have a big impact on soybean yields. And so, and again, there might be some local effects. And so again, on the next slide here, just for a relative comparison, I pulled, um, Soybean basis in North Dakota, again, using Kansas State's uh, basis tool. Again, don't forget that the, the, the presentation of information here is very different than, than what you're looking at on the uh, Purdue crop basis charts. So again, we're starting not at the first week of September, but instead uh, the left-hand side of the charts is starting at Jan first week of January. Uh, and again, on, on my charts, I was showing uh, that September contract basis in here, uh, we're looking at this on a, on a nearby basis. That's that's kind of how they have their charts calculated. So this is nearby soybean basis continually rolling uh, with that nearby uh, futures contract. 
And so what you see is, again, we, we've had some volatility there. And again, some of that has to do um, with uh, uh, roles between different futures contracts. But nonetheless, uh, we've seen strong soybean basis uh, there in North Dakota throughout the, the crop marketing year, or at least the calendar year, given the way this is set up. But what's really interesting to look at is kind of where we are today. Uh, so that last point on the chart there, you know, their basis for soybean is 61 cents above where it would normally be. And again, they typically see very negative basis there in those Northern Plains states. So, uh, you know, looking at the chart there, somewhere, you know, a dollar under is not, not abnormal for them. Um, but now they're looking at basis that, that maybe only 50 cents under uh, the, the September futures contract. And so again, given crop conditions in that uh, part of the world, I would expect to see uh, their basis uh, be a little bit stronger uh, where ours has continued to kind of decline. Um, but but time will kind of tell in, in as far as, you know, again, moving soybeans uh, east to west and, and what the needs are going to be once we, once we get the crop harvested. So Nathan, when I look at these charts and I think about some of the things that we said on these webinars a few months ago, um, you know, I'm humbled a little bit because we thought there might be some deterioration in basis, but we also recognized that, you know, in some prior years with these tight supplies, we had seen some pretty good pops in late season basis, and that did not materialize this year. And I guess I'm wondering, thinking about the export values, if that was the big driver. If you think about those prior years uh, when we saw some, some real positive strength in basis in late season, it was in part because of very strong export demand, and that simply did not materialize this summer. And I, I suspect that's probably what led to the, the collapse in basis. Uh, we simply didn't have that export demand. Do you agree with that? That's right. I, I think I agree. And again, you know, there's kind of two sides there. One, production, while um, you know, varying in different geographies, the, the national production there appears to be relatively good. Um, but then I agree. I think that the main driver there was, well, okay, if we have, you know, decent uh, overall production, you know, what, what is the demand side of it? And export demand clearly um, at least, you know, uh, leveled off or, or declined there as we moved into summer months where we didn't see soybeans moving as much as we did there in the uh, early part of the year. And so I think that definitely was the driver there is we needed to to see those big pops, we needed to maybe have uh, some production issues combined with, you know, some some big buying uh, in the export market, and we just we got kind of the complete opposite, right? We got relatively good to normal production, uh, and then export demand kind of uh, fizzled out there over the summer months when when that would have really caused that pop in basis. Yeah, and I mean that's reflected in USDA bumping up the uh, carryover estimate, and then you know I think here in in Indiana, of course, uh, it's those river markets that, that pick up the export demand, and we simply didn't see the demand to fill barges that we saw in some of those prior years. So, I, again, I think it points out, you know, uh, the research that you did uh, going back with one of your graduate students a while back, you looked at this pretty carefully, and, and one of your conclusions was, as I recall, that um, you can see some strength in basis late summer, but it's it's a very very risky kind of a move to wait for it, right? Uh, yeah, it's a lot of volatility. Yeah, can be, can be rewarding, but a high volatility and hard to forecast, right? So, yep, exactly. And that definitely turned out to be true. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you've taken a look at pricing opportunities for new crop. 
Yep. So looking at the, the soybean side of things this morning, we had soybean futures uh, around $13.52 a bushel. Again, I went to the crop basis tool, pulled out an expected soybean basis uh, for central Indiana this fall of 30 cents under. Uh, that puts this at a $13.22 uh, cash price opportunity for this fall. You know, and again, I think the same the same things ring true here as what I said about corn. You know, on one hand, that's not going to look as high as maybe some some of the cash price opportunities we've had throughout uh, the the previous months. Uh, on the other hand, again, Michael's going to show us those break evens, and this is still well above break even uh, for most folks. And so, you know, there's there's certainly opportunity to to take some positions if you haven't done anything on soybeans, uh, new crop soybeans. This might you know you might. You probably don't want to let it pass by, but again, if you think about okay, well, you know, what are, what are we seeing in terms of information? Well, number one, we know that the, the stocks to use on the soybean side is much tighter than, than what it is on on the corn side. And then on the next slide, you know, similar to what we did for corn, if you look at USDA's projection of that marketing year average for soybeans, not only are they above what I'm projecting as a potential cash price uh, for for fall soybeans. I mean, they're well above, right? 50 cents or so above where I'm at on, on that kind of expected uh, fall cash price. And so again, you know, uh, it, it leads you to kind of evaluate the information that you have access to on, on one hand, right? You're not gonna go broke making a profit and, and those uh, current opportunities are profitable. And we'll look in a second at kind of where they compare relative to where we've been uh, the last couple of months. But on the same hand, there is upside potential. And again, there's upside potential in corn and soybeans, but just where we're at on really, really tight stocks for soybeans, there's probably more upside potential on soybeans, I would say. I don't, I don't know if Jim and Michael would agree with that, but you know, it seems to be a pretty safe conclusion. And, and USDA seems to be kind of in line with that uh, kind of hypothesis or that uh, recommendation as well. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. You know, if you look at it again, as we mentioned before, in the Indiana uh, marketing year average is typically above the USDA's national average. And so when you think of it that way, um, it's probably more like 60 or 70 cents um, above what those forward contract uh, bids that, that you were talking about a minute ago with that roughly what, 13.22. So from a price forecasting standpoint, suggests there's some upside potential Again, looking back at the research that you did, you know, one of the things I think you concluded on your research was that um, if you're going to store something unhedged, soybeans is probably going to be the preferred alternative over corn, right? Yeah, that was that was definitely the conclusion there. As you looked at kind of a portfolio of uh, storage strategies, a student that I worked with uh, a couple of years ago looked at that pretty closely, and and the result was that you know there was certainly opportunities uh, to um, Earn storage returns for both corn and soybeans uh, on hedged, right? So just speculative, put it in the bin and wait. But uh, the frequency and the, the the size with which you kind of hit, um, you know, positive returns with the soybeans were much more often than what we what we saw for corn. And so uh, definitely would kind of lean towards the soybeans in that sense. It's not quite the slam dunk it was this time last year. Because uh, the, there's not as much upside potential, given the fact that futures are reflecting, to a good degree, the, the scarcity that's out there. But it does suggest there is some some upside potential. And if you wanted to store something unhedged, you might want to lean towards the soybeans, right? Right. 
So you've taken a look at futures as well. Yeah. So again, just to give some context to where where those bids are and where we've been, because I know sometimes we can just really anchor to to those uh, peaks in the chart, right? And you know, fourteen fifty or you know whatever the number is. Um, and if you look at it, you know wh- where we are today, we're really right kind of in the middle, average of where we've been over the the last uh, two three months. And so I think, again, you can feel good about uh, making some some moves on new crop soybeans at the levels that we're at. Did you sell at the peak? No, and I don't think that that's a problem. Again, if you're selling above your break-even, you're making money, nobody's saying that we should sell everything, right? That's certainly not the recommendation. There's upside potential. We've, we've clearly laid that out. But if you've made no moves on new crop soybeans, uh, I think that it would it would be wise to at least um, you know make some moves on on a small portion of the crop to lock in those profitable levels. Again, it's about risk management more than it is about you know uh, selling at the highest price. And so if you can uh, lock in profitable levels on a certain portion of your crop, that changes the break even going forward uh, and allows you some more flexibility to um, you know see what can happen and maybe um, earn some of those storage returns like we mentioned. So again, you've taken a look at the downside risk using the uh, University of Illinois farm doc tool. Right. And so again, the story is similar here as it relates to, you know, we can look at the downside risk. I'm just using a a dollar uh, decline as as a reference. So uh, if you look at current uh, futures between now and expiration, there's a 24% chance that November soybean futures are going to decline by a dollar or more, which is useful. I think what's what's maybe really interesting is again that month over month comparison. So when we looked at this last month, um, you know that probability was more like thirty percent. So again, we've seen that, that probability of downside risk declining. And again, as we move towards expiration, that makes sense. Um, but you know, it, it just allows you to kind of think about you know what what the opportunities are, what the risk is, and you kind of put all that information together. Uh, and hopefully be able to make a, an informed decision on what you want to do uh, with new crop uh, soybeans. I usually focus on the downside, but if you look, there's a lot of upside uh, on this particular chart or in that uh, uh, farm dock price discovery tool. There's a there's about a 20% chance, it's closer to 19% chance that the November futures price is going to be above 1450. So I, I think it's consistent with uh, what we've been talking about here, uh, the fact that there is some upside for soybeans. It's so unusual to hear Dr. Doom say that. (laughs) (laughs) It's that tight carryover on soybeans that makes me optimistic on soybeans. So, Michael, you have taken a look at uh, net farm income projections for the stylized case farm that you kind of maintain based here in uh, west central Indiana. Yeah, there's a couple points I want to make here. Uh, first of all, uh, 21 is going to be extremely good. In fact, if you go back all the way to 2007, you probably could go back further than that. Uh, 21 is going to rival uh, uh, 2010, 2011, 2012, and probably surpass it, uh, depending on a, a, a producer's marketing strategy. And so 21 is really good. Are we going to see a repeat of 10, 11, and 12? 10, 11, and 12, we had uh, three years in a row of a very strong net farm income per acre. I don't think so. Uh, I think 22, the prices are, are pretty good. Uh, if you look at it in November, December uh, 2022, I think corn is is, is over $5 and, and soybeans is over $12. But the problem here is, is our break-even prices increased dramatically uh, from going from 21 to 22. 
uh, looking at my, you know, some uh, budgets that I've been working on, uh, looking at Illinois budgets. Illinois has also put out some budgets. It looks like break-even prices for both corn and soybeans are could be eight to ten percent higher. Uh, that's a large change uh, for one year, and and the, and the real culprit here. There's several costs. Look like they might be increasing, but the real culprit is fertilizer. Uh, fertilizer costs look like they could be fifteen to twenty percent higher. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know. Uh, this year or in 2022 uh, compared to 2021 and so a lot of upward pressure on those on those production costs is going to keep 2022 uh, to be more like 2020 uh, and and less like 2021. And to reiterate going back to 2020 levels on your chart is not a bad year right? No it's not a bad year. But it's certainly but, not the extraordinary returns that we're going to experience here in 2021. And, and the reason why this is so important is in 10, 11, and 12, when we had those three good years in a row, we had very large increases in both cash rents and land values. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily going to be the case here uh, moving 22 and, and beyond uh, because I just don't think that the net farm income is going to stay as high uh, as, as it is in 2021. So you have taken a look at those returns to land and, and cash rental values. Yeah, a very similar story to what we've already talked about. I'm, I'm uh, the the uh, increase in uh, from 20 to 21 was about four uh, percent. The Purdue uh, cash rent land value survey recently came out, and the, the increase in cash rents is about four percent uh, in 21. Uh, I'm thinking that an increase maybe five to ten percent uh, in 22. I think the strong returns in 21 is going to create a strong upward pressure on cash rents in 22, and so maybe a five to ten percent increase uh, in, in 2022. Uh, but uh, uh, looking beyond that, you know, looking into 23 and beyond, uh, unless we, uh, unless, unless uh, uh, the long-term forecasts are, are wrong, uh, I think the, the, uh, the, the uh, strong upward pressure on cash rents is just going to be a couple, year, uh, couple years, uh, 21 and 22. So, Michael, just kind of remind me and, and your, our listeners uh, and viewers, when you compute net return to land, what are you subtracting out to compute that net return? Yes, that, that, that does include cash costs. It does include depreciation. It does include uh, ownership costs on machinery, uh, as well as an owner withdrawal for their for their management and labor in the business. And so, the only cost that's not uh, excluded is land ownership uh, if you own the land and cash rent. Uh, and and so and and so the net return to land four twenty two does is stronger than the projected cash rent. And that's why I think that the cash rent uh, you know five to ten percent increase. Uh, you know, could be it could be in line uh, for 22, uh, but but uh, uh, it is much uh, the difference between net return to land and, and cash rent is much much smaller uh, in 22, uh, uh, you know, projected in 22 uh, compared to 21. So, Michael, um, seed corn sales personnel and seed soybean personnel are visiting farmers uh, rampantly across the Midwest, right as probably as we speak and trying to get people to commit to what their acreages are going to be in 2022. And so you've taken a first look, uh, maybe a second look, I think, actually, because I think you looked at this last month. But what do those projected returns look like for corn versus soybeans in 2022? Yeah, first of all, for 21, this this recent increase in, in corn, uh, corn prices as a result of the August crop report, uh, that lower than expected yield really improved the prospects for corn uh, in, in 21. And now it looks like uh, corn could be $75 per acre more profitable than soybeans uh, in 21. So I wanted to start with that. 
the the corn and the the corn and soybean comparison in 22 is still a toss up. Uh, there really isn't much difference between uh, net return prospects for corn and soybeans in, in 22. Uh, it's been bounced around the last several months. Uh, some months soybeans looks a little better. This month corn looks a little better. But there really is no uh, there really is no clear signal uh, that we we should plant a lot more corn or plant a lot more soybeans. So kind of suggest uh, kind of the 50-50 strategy that a lot of people Yes, consider. and maybe acreage will, will remain similar to what it was this year. Yeah. So you mentioned the uh, the cost side of the equation, and you've taken a look at that in this next chart in a little more detail, right? Yeah, this is a this is a chart related to corn. The soybeans would be uh, even more extreme in ter- the, terms of the fertilizer increase. One of the things that we've seen uh, in recent uh, fertilizer prices is very, very strong prices for both phosphorus and potash. Uh, and so that it has a huge impact on, on soybeans because uh, 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 corn is really driven off nitrogen to a larger degree uh, than, than phosphorus and phosphate, though they are important uh, for corn. Uh, so, so having said that, if you look at the, uh, you look at the 22 uh, prospects compared to 21, uh, the 21 budget, we're looking at fertilizer prices anywhere from 15 to 20% higher. Uh, just putting that, uh, you know, putting that uh, in, in a little bit more to the nitty gritty, we're looking at uh, fertilizer cost per acre on average and high productivity ground that is is as high as what it was in 2013. Uh, so many producers remember that we had some pretty high fertilizer costs uh, in 2013. It looks like it's going to be similar uh, in 2022 uh, and, and certainly much, much higher uh, than we, we've seen the last three or four years. So that kind of points to the margin squeeze that people are worried about, not in 21 and maybe not too much in 22, but certainly down the road. Cause the challenge is once those costs goes up, it's hard to pull them back. It's, and, but your chart does suggest they can come back, right? Yes. Uh, we saw a fairly large reduction in break-even price for corn, for example, uh, going from 13 all the way into 20. It dropped about 50 cents per bushel. A lot of that was cash rent, but there was also some help uh, related to fertilizer costs uh, coming out of 13. And so, uh, and so uh, the break-even price can come down, uh, but right now we're on the upside. Uh, you know, break-even price for corn and soybeans at uh, eight to ten percent higher. Uh, you know, in 22 compared to, to 21. Uh, that you know, if you look at corn, uh, we're looking at 430 being a relatively low break-even price. I've seen some budgets in other states as high as 450. Uh, and 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 uh, and on, on more marginal soil, we're looking at break-even prices closer to 475. Uh, and so break-even prices dramatically higher uh, than than what they were last year. But just to reiterate. Uh, we're looking at some pretty good prices, uh, even even looking, uh, you know, at the November and December futures, uh, you know, for corn and soybeans. And so uh, it's not like we're not, we're not seeing some good, mar- you know, some margins there. It's just that the margins aren't as good as what they are this year. Uh, looking at soybeans, uh, we were down to $10 or below, uh, you know, break-even price for soybeans. We we probably dropped break-even price a dollar. Uh, moving from 2013 into into 2020, now we're going the other direction. Uh, we're looking at a break-even price closer to 1050, uh, 1075. I've seen some break-even prices from other states uh, closer to that 1025, 1050. But the point is, uh, is the break-even prices are are are, are substantially higher uh, in 22 compared to 21. So you've kind of tossed out those numbers a little bit on the next slide. I think you've actually got the breakouts. So you can actually look at your cost per bushel and 
for our viewers, maybe it's important to look at those numbers versus their own numbers for those same categories, right? Yeah, and it's particularly important uh, to look at at land. You know, does your land cost per bushel is it higher than what we what we what we're presenting today? Uh, that's something to look at because that's important for your negotiations uh, with a with the landlord. But also uh, machinery and labor, two of the costs that vary tremendously across operations are our labor and machinery. And so compare those uh, for, on, on your own farm. Uh, you know, for example, on labor, I only have uh, approximately 20 cents uh, per bushel for corn and about 60 cents for soybeans. That could be double uh, on some farms. And so, so take a look at that, but also the machinery side. Uh, the machinery side could be can can range uh, substantially uh, from farm to farm, and so and so rather than just looking at the break even uh, and getting excited about that, uh, calculate your break even. Please do that. Uh, I encourage you to look at the benchmark. You know, use the numbers that we provided today as benchmarks and compare uh, your 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 uh, farm's information to these benchmarks. So, Michael, for some clarity, let's just kind of work through a couple of these. So on your land charge, you took the cash rent, divided it by the productivity number, right? Yeah. And so right now that's about a dollar thirty. Uh, you know, for corn, it's it's about four forty uh for soybeans. Uh, you know, uh, land cost is more important for soybeans. Typically for soybeans, land represents thirty-five to forty percent of all costs, whereas corn is closer to, to thirty to thirty-five percent. Uh the, the fertilizer increased dramatically, about ninety cents. Uh, for corn and about a dollar forty for soybeans. Uh, the the third largest cost for for corn uh, about sixty cents uh, per bushel for machinery. That's variable and fixed. So that's the ownership portion, but also the fuel and and repairs. Uh, and about a dollar seventy for soybeans. And and so uh, we've got other estimates for seed, pesticides, and, and labor. So the other one I wanted to focus on was labor because how did you compute that? Well. <laughs> I, I, I try to look at some of the uh, the farm farm management information from Illinois and, and other states uh, and take a look at what the what the labor cost what the the, uh, uh, the the family living withdrawals the average family living withdrawals in those other states and then I I, I uh, then I look at my case farm uh, and and so use both of those pieces of information how many acres are in the case farm how much money is uh, on average is being uh, withdrawn uh, for, for, for family living expenses uh, and do the calculation using that, using that information. Uh, but as I indicated, uh, labor does vary a lot among farms, particularly among farms of different sizes. Uh, you know, sometimes this is one area where uh, the smaller and, and medium-sized farms are at a disadvantage typically. Uh, their labor cost per bushel uh, is typically higher uh, than the than the larger farms, and, uh, but there's larger farms that also uh, have to take a close look at labor. And so uh, I'm glad you uh, reiterated, uh, you know, uh, or asked a question related to labor because that's one you definitely want to uh, take a look at on your own operation. Yeah. So the way way you did it, just to reiterate, you you looked at the owner withdrawal that's used for family living expenses, divided it by the number of acres in the operation. Yeah. and then divided it back by the bushels, right? Yeah, the case farm does have hired labor. And so I'll also using some some higher labor estimates, USDA, uh, you know, and some survey information from Kansas. Yeah. And then just for, again, for clarity, when you say high productivity on corn, what yield are you using in that particular uh, For, for uh, corn, uh, looking at the 22 budget, that's about 250 bushel corn. Uh, obviously, uh, the, the, the yields could be higher than that, and that will impact the break even. Uh, if you had 225 bushel corn with the same cost structure, 
uh, your break even is going to be lower. Uh, on soybeans, you use 65 bushel. Um, there, there's people that with with higher uh, you know higher trend yields than that. Uh, so it's important to to put in your own trend yields uh, when, when you're doing budgeting. Don't put the highest year you ever got. If that's 21, don't put that number into the budget. Put the trend yield in. All right. So good information and uh, you know good good homework I think for us to think about uh, computing some break evens because I know that's not something a lot of people enjoy, but it's really important. So that wraps up our discussion for today. I want to uh, point out to our listeners and viewers that we do have another webinar coming up just a week from today. We'll be talking about the Indiana Farmland and Cash Rent Value Survey results. That survey was done in the month of June. A report was just released here at the tail end of July, and we'll be discussing those in detail with the, uh, the report's uh, author, Dr. Todd Keithy, a member of our faculty. So that's next Friday, August 20th at 12.30 p.m. Our next Outlook webinar is scheduled to be the day after the World Ag Supply Demand Estimates and the September Crop report, uh, crop Production Report come out. That'll be on Monday, September 13th. The reports all come out on Friday afternoon, and we'll do the webinar on Monday afternoon. And that'll also be at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Details for those will be available at our website, purdue.edu slash commercial ag. And with that, I want to thank uh, our, our, my co-partners in crime here today, uh, Dr. Nathan Thompson and Dr. Michael Langemeyer. And on behalf of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture, I'm Jim Minter. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.